Hello everyone, it's June 8th, 2021. Well, we're going to Venus. Two times, in fact. We got Veritas and Da Vinci. And what exactly will they be doing? We're going to find out. And then we're going to talk about the presidential budget request for NASA. Don't worry, it'll be painless. All right, let's do it. And lift off. Episode 312 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So apparently the Air Force is looking into using Starship, possibly, to deliver supplies to... Yeah, we, we've heard that before. Um, um, have we heard that before? I don't know if I have, but... Uh, yeah. I mean, I remember talking about the point-to-point... Yeah, point-to-point, you know, point, but... Starships, but not, I don't remember hearing necessarily about the, the military. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, pr- I'm pretty... Sh- I don't think we talked about it on this show, but... Um, I, I've seen that in the news like before today, I'm mm. pretty sure. I've only seen it this past week, um, but uh, it seems pretty interesting. But at the same time, you know, there are people kind of wondering exactly what the case is here that, you know, exactly in what way would you use uh, this particular capability? Because how much faster, like, is it really when you have to load the thing up and fuel it? And then you have to land it somewhere safe. Then you have to save the vehicle and get everything off, which isn't necessarily easy either. I don't know. It just seems like, uh, and it sounds expensive, very difficult, yeah. but it sounds cool. Like, I feel like at the beginning of like, you know, like in the sixties, you know, and you know, fifties when, you know, we were kind of figuring out what could you, what could you use space for militarily in the first place that definitely like crew transports were mm-hmm. one idea. It's just suborbitally ship troops to another side of the world in just, you know, an hour or two and so, or like, yeah. And of course, that isn't an efficient way to <laughs> to do that. But that was the idea. It's an old idea. <laughs> yeah, that was actually the idea with the space shuttle. Right, right. I mean, it, I feel like this kind of happens again and again, and then they just kind of abandon it because, really, <laughs> you most likely have the time to take like an extra five to whatever ten hours in order to get something somewhere. So just do that instead. Just use a plane. You know. Yep. Yeah. Um, military and space, like I have an emotional reaction to that, but also like from an engineering standpoint, yeah, it, it's definitely far off at best. Mm-hmm. The use of military in space, that might be another point of contention, right? Because there is still the Outer Space Treaty, but I don't think that this violates that because it's technically suborbital or whatever. Yeah, like right. I'm sure there's yeah. some loophole there. Uh, but yeah, that's another concern. Was this the news was basically that they're looking into like learning about, you know, the, the Starship interfaces and things so that way they could, you know, kind of develop their own infrastructure to be kind of Starship compatible? Or was that a different thing in the news that i saw recently <laughs> as far as i know it's just actually using starship itself like to use the I vehicle filling it up and yeah i mean i'm sure that there would need to be quite a bit of infrastructure on the ground that would need to be put in place then again if you're i mean i don't know it just depends on how they want to use it because like if you're planning on landing it somewhere where there's no place for it to land but you just have to you know find a clearing then i mean i don't know if that's find possible you're just like this this poor squirrel somewhere and then a giant rocket Hanging comes on down the edge of a clearing, so you can, you know, you got a pretty decent radius of vision, but you know, you got some trees for some uh, for some tree nuts to to eat, and suddenly this tower of fire comes falling out of the sky. But the thing is, in that scenario, you wouldn't be able to get it back off the ground, right? I mean, you'd have to refuel it. It might still have enough fuel. I don't know. <laughs> So Discovery 15 and 16 have been selected, and we're going to Venus. So last week we were talking about the New Frontiers missions and uh, some of the issues there, but I guess that's not the case for the Discovery ones. So Discovery is the lower-cost missions. That's actually one class below New Frontiers. Um, and we were just talking about the cost cap, which is $500 million, which surprised me because I thought it would be less than that. But So still not cheap. But uh, yeah, so Venus, um, how cool is that? I don't think I saw that coming. I would, I was kind of, you know, I've been thinking about Venus for a while, actually, because it is a planet that doesn't get much attention. So I'm kind of happy about mm-hmm. this because uh, I have so many questions and it's just such a hellish planet that it just sounds like a cool place to visit. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my hot take. On Venus, right? That, I mean, and Venus, I mean, Venus may be hot, but that's a very cold take. I feel like everybody is on board with you on that one. <laughs> okay, and certainly everyone on this call is. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, True. you're not gonna. <laughs> Perhaps I misuse hot take. I thought that just meant like you know a spur of the moment you know evaluation or something like that. You know what I mean? Like not necessarily um, yeah, controversial. You, but I usually kind of yeah, it, it, it's usually connotated with a controversial 
or a bad opinion. Spicy take. Yeah, spicy take. <laughs> no, and, and I thought the same exact thing as you, David, where when we talked about, I think it must have been when they down-selected to these four, uh, the four that were competing, the two Venus missions and then uh, the Io Volcano Observer and Trident. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I feel like, yeah, we... Uh, I, you know, I, I was rooting for the Iowa one more than anything, but um, of the two, I figured if they did go with a Venus mission, they'd only pick one of the two, even though they're mm-hmm. very different types of missions. And mm-hmm. so that's why I think this surprised yeah, everybody. That's <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually, because they could have picked somewhere else besides Venus. Like you could do one Venus mission, but they did two, actually. And mm-hmm. I wonder if there's a reason for that. I mean, beyond, you know, the obvious ones, but if there's some kind of a, I don't know, I can't think of one. But um, But I am kind of disappointed about not visiting at least Trident or no, not visiting Triton, which is the mm. Trident mission because there's something about Triton that's just very interesting to me. It, that too, like mm-hmm. Venus, is this kind of, you know, shrouded in a mystery, far off place. I don't know how long the mission would be, right? Because you, just because you have to get to Neptune. So what is that? Like a, kind of like New Horizons in a way. Exactly. So, right. uh, what is that? Like a yeah. seven, eight year mission or something? I don't know if it, if I'm sure it involved, uh, flybys. Yeah. Cause it would have to be a flyby, right? At least if you wanted to get there in a timely fashion, if not, you know, who knows how long that could take. Oh yeah. No, it, there was a number of flybys. So this would be something that would, you know, they were proposed to launch it in 2025 with a backup window in 2026. And then it would do a uh, Earth gravity assist, then Venus, then Earth, then Earth, then Jupiter and Io, and then uh, finally get to Triton. And so in 2038. Hmm. So, I mean, like, yeah, Dragonfly, right, is going to get to Titan even before then, right? <laughs> and so that just shows hmm. that it's definitely long term. But yeah, but, yeah, but and, and like you said, it, it, I mean, it also shares not just that distance, but it's also a flyby. And so even though, you know, you know, a flyby is a one and done, we saw how amazing, you know, the first uh, uh, New Frontiers mission, New Horizons was with his flyby of Pluto. And so unlike Voyager 2, Triton, Trident would actually get full kind of uh, coverage of um, the moon because, right, the, uh, you know, Voyager 2 did its flyby. I think it flew over one of the poles. I think, I think it flew over the north pole of Neptune, but then imaged only the southern pole, mm. the southern hemisphere of Triton. And so that's why those images of Triton you see are, you know, it's very cantaloupe looking and all that. Those images are like, it's kind of weird. You're looking at the south pole, like you, you might think of, you know, you kind of always think the equator is kind of towards the middle and you got right, right. north is up and south is the bottom. And that's not quite true for the images of, of Triton. And so it actually would have gone through the atmosphere a little bit too because they had seen some high altitude clouds and things like that. So it would have been a really cool flyby. But, you know, I think the idea was to just leverage that if we do both missions to Venus, you really, really, really upgrade what the previous uh, radar mission to Venus has done. Uh, Magellan, as well as the previous uh, probe-based mission, which was a uh, uh, one of the Soviet ones. So we're going all the way back to the 70s in that case, and uh, and just you know, it's it's our nearest neighbor. You know, it's it, you know, I don't know, throw a lot of uh, spacecraft at it, like the way we throw a lot of spacecraft at Mars, and we learn so much mm-hmm. more about Mars than we do, you know, about Venus because of that. And so take advantage of it, I say. Or they say, at least, I, again, was rooting for Io, which I think is the most unique object in the solar system. And that's why I really wanted <laughs> that mission to work if they get selected. But, yeah, you know, hopefully it'll be able to fly another time. But, you know, I mean, just, you know, just real quick, all right? I mean, it, you know, I, this has been all over, you know, Twitter and social media. But just, you know, the, the, the two missions, I mean, I don't think we actually even said them, right? <laughs> There's Da Vinci Plus, which is an atmospheric probe. It's based on the Pioneer Venus probe. It's going to have all sorts of great in-situ measurements that are, again, orders of magnitude better than have ever been done before. And it's going to land in an interesting terrain, uh, basically what is kind of like the continents of Venus, the equivalent of the continents of Venus. And so it will take some ground imaging as well, um, which is going to be pretty sweet. I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning it's going to be like, uh, like the Haugen's probe to Titan in the sense that you had imaging of it during its descent as well as, you know, once it actually reaches mm-hmm. the surface. And then the other, uh, winner of the award was Veritas, which is, uh, basically its main thing is to do, you know, uh, uh, radar tomography of the surface, right? Like you said, Venus has this thick atmosphere around it, but also has, uh, some infrared, uh, spectrometers, um, basically that can look through a bunch of different, uh, windows in the atmosphere, in the infrared and be able to kind of, uh, check out the surface and be able to detect, you know, the different type of composition and makeup mineralogy going on there and so again it orders a magnitude uh, increase on kind of what's been done before 
And uh, potentially, ESA might pick a Venus mission for their uh, their M5 orbiter, their 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 fifth uh, uh, mission in this kind of program that they've been running. You know, and uh, if they pick this one called Envision, then that's also a radar mapper, but it it uses a different band, um, and it's going to have different resolution. It's going to be complementary big time uh, to Veritas. And so that would be something pretty wild if uh, we do that. Suddenly we're getting private missions there, possibly by Rocket Lab. You know, mm-hmm. Venus, you know, becomes this whole new thing where, you know, we're throwing more and more spacecraft because, you know, it does get closer to Earth than any other world in the solar system. And so, I mean, it's, any other it's, planet, the most, it's the most like Earth in many ways. And like, we just, we, we are in love with Mars and we're not in love with Venus. And I'm, it, I, I'm, yeah, both I'm properties. With, uh, it's really similar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with Beck on this one. We need to go. <laughs> I, I think it's just that, you know, obviously there's no possibility of living on Venus. And so people kind of go, well, you know, what are you going to do there? Uh, Cause Mars is just, you know, enticing. I don't know. I feel like Venus might be an easier place to live than Mars. Ultimately. Like if you have the technology to live on Mars, you, you're not too far away from the technology you need to live on Venus. Like actually on Venus, on Venus. Well, on the surface, no, but like up in the clouds. Yeah, I like, suppose. Like that's, how much? Yeah. If you're if you're already not being able to take advantage of you know Earth's atmosphere, and its breathability, like it, it's not that much bigger of a deal to to live in a mm-hmm. hot air balloon than on the surface of Mars. I don't mm-hmm. know. It, that yeah, that's I, definitely boy, that's that's a Venusian hot take right there. I could I could be uh, <laughs> totally uh deep in misconception there, but like I don't know. So so it seems to No, be. not only do I agree, but I think, you know, there's something that, you know, unless you start genetically modifying humans, we don't mm-hmm. know if long-term exposure to Mars's surface mm-hmm. gravity might just be a non-starter for yeah. humans yeah. there, unless, you, again, you can genetically modify us. And that's not something you can terraform. You can't change the mass on Mars, yeah. <laughs> no matter what. And so that's why Venus could be potentially a much better location for humans to go inhabit in the future. Uh, as wild again as you know cloud cities are <laughs> yeah but i mean you're right yeah that's that's why i think ultimately like if there is a human presence in space permanently it'll be and you know giant o'neill cylinders or, or you know something like that i don't know if the mm. surface of any moon or planet is really going to work just because of the reasons you mentioned plus a lot of others so i mean i don't know uh, but mm-hmm. maybe that's just because i have that bias because i like gravity i like the good <laughs> earth 1g you know L- listen to this crazy fool i'm with you He's he likes gravity. <laughs> yeah, it uh, you know, keeps all my stuff in place. Yeah, so you had you had mentioned ESA, but aren't they going to collaborate with NASA on these two missions or one of them? I think so. The the so for Veritas, right? The the the, the mapper there, uh, that one that I was saying that basically is going to you know, uh, so it's not quite a spectrometer, but it's going to measure basically the surface emissivity in. Um, these atmospheric windows through the clouds, that's going to be built by DLR of Germany. And so, and, and I bet if you look in more detail, there's, you know, I mean, yeah, we're, you know, we're always kind of working with ESA and yeah. other groups, it seems like all our missions. So I guess we can translate on over to the NASA presidential budget request. <laughs> so, so we don't talk about that kind of thing too often on this show, but, uh, yeah, yeah po- we'll, politics we'll an and, uh, finances. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, two of my favorite things. Yeah, so um, the Biden administration put out their presidential budget request for NASA. So, like, obviously, um, or, or maybe even not, not so obviously, in the U.S., Congress uh, sets the the budget for the government, um, and the president does not. Um, but the the president is kind of seen as the the leader of the government in many ways, and so. Uh, the president has the opportunity to weigh in on a lot of things. And like one of the traditional things is they do a, a budget request. Uh, and, and this is the, the NASA, uh, budget request. So, um, we're going to talk about this. All of this is what the administration's asking for and not what Congress will eventually give to NASA. And in particular, right now, I don't think that there's uh, many people who listen to English language podcasts who don't realize that the uh, U.S. is in incredible political turmoil and um, our Congress is is split pretty well down the middle in terms of the, the two major um uh, the two major political parties. So like, um, nothing's getting done right now. It's taking forever to, d- to agree on anything. And, um, one party is thinking about doing some pretty drastic measures to allow them to pass, uh, measures that the other party doesn't want. And the other party is outraged that they would, uh, it, it goes on and on. Right. So just 
to say all this is theoretical, um, but traditionally the, these budget requests are, are more or less uh, honored. Uh, I mean, notably uh, last last year, in the last four years, one of the presidential budget requests was actually um, expanded upon by NASA. NASA gave them, or uh, Congress gave NASA more money than the budget request uh, was asking for. So, you know, you never know. Could, hmm. We could even see more than this. But uh, the, the big picture is this budget request is huge. Um, it adds 6.6% to NASA's overall budget. Um, and, and that's actually not what I mean by huge, believe it or not. I mean, 6.6% is a, a pretty decent amount of money. Um, but what's what's really big for me is the philosophy behind it. So the the mm. Biden uh, campaign, as well as the Biden administration during the first um, the first period of of, uh, um, of the administration, really said over and over, we don't care about the moon, we don't care about exploration. What we need to focus on is Earth sciences, uh, and uh, I think it's pretty obvious my, that my opinion is great. Let's do more Earth sciences. But the, this isn't a zero sum game. Let's throw more money at everything. Uh, let's go do more, uh, more space exploration. But you know, Earth sciences aren't as slick and flashy as uh, missions to EO. Uh, but they're really important, and they have uh, a huge impact in a practical sense on on our life here on Earth. Um, so definitely, like let's let's do more more Earth science, and, and that's what we expected to see out of this. And we totally didn't. Uh, so first off, there were three things, uh, three line items that got reduced. Uh, and I'm, I'm mostly going off of uh, the Planetary Society's breakdown. Uh, and they kind of cherry picked categories a little bit. So um, but but I, I think they're probably doing it in a in a fairly representative, reliable way. So the three uh, categories that that lost uh, money was um, Nancy Grace Roman, um, the space telescope, uh, their budget went down by 0.7%. Uh, JWST, that budget goes down by 58%. And then SLS goes down by 4%. And, and these reductions aren't bad things, right? All three of these, uh, all, all three of these missions or initiatives, I guess, are beyond their peak funding. Uh, they, they are beginning to, to need less and less money to do what they need to do. So th this is all, that makes sense. That all works, right? Like JWST reducing, uh, the JWST budget by 60% is like absolutely what you do once you launch a vehicle, right? Boy, I really hope that saying that is not going to come back to bite me in the butt. We'll talk more about JWST in short and sweet, but, but yeah, they're, they're all, you know, coming out of, uh, out of the most expensive parts of their uh, of their life cycle, two categories um, remain static. They keep the the same budget. Or the same budget is requested. One is Orion, uh, which is definitely like you know moon exploration oriented. So the fact that that didn't go down is is probably pretty important. Um, and, and the fact that Orion is also at the end of its funding life. So like it, it is also past peak as far as I know, like they, they've already flown it. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's work to be done, but you know, at this point you're not doing any development, you're just constructing the darn things. So, so that, that seems pretty reasonable to me, keeping that static, you know, in terms of budget, budgetary inflation, right. <laughs> keeping in mind this life cycle that, that seems like that's actually a, a little bit of an increase uh, perhaps. Um, I, I'm not super duper familiar with, uh, with budgetary, uh, planning. Uh, and then the other one that remains static is construction and environmental compliance. And boy, that, that just makes sense. Right. So the, the categories that went up and some of these I've got exclamation marks next to, uh, lunar gateway gets an additional 12.3%. Um, that sounds like a, yes, we want to build lunar gateway. We want to make sure that happens. Um, which in terms of science, uh, isn't terribly exciting to me, but in terms of like Kerbal Space Program lover inside of me and the 12 year old inside of me like that, that's cool. I, I really want to <laughs> see uh, a space station around another, uh, another planetary body. And then HLS got an extra 41% uh, or a request of 41% additional. Um, and, and that really starts to seem like um Biden is getting behind Congress and saying yeah let's get a second uh a second um 
what do they call it? It's not first choice, second choice. It's not plan A, plan B. I don't remember what it's called, but like, let's, let's get uh, a second contractor in there. The thing to keep in mind here is while for a 41% boost is a lot like that, that is an increase. Um, when you look at the, the life cycle, that's actually less than what the previous administration, the Trump administration was asking for. So, um, they projected that at this point, uh, HLS should be getting funded, uh, $3 billion over this request. Um, so, so 41 is a, is a big number, but depending on, on how fast this is supposed to be moving, uh, that, that could actually, uh, you know, be a relative decrease. Um, but, but it's still to, to me, just off the top of my head, it still sounds like, um, like that's a confirmation of, yes, we want a second contractor. Um, and then uh, I was going through the, the planetary science article on this and they, uh, oh, sorry, uh, the planetary society. And, and so planetary society is very focused on planetary science and they, cited their priority missions, right? Um, and they said that almost all of them got lots of funding and are, fu you know, if this goes through, they're funded to the point where we don't need to worry about them being canceled. And so um, the, the whole, the planetary science budget on, on whole is basically the, this, if this request goes through, if this request gets met, then this will be the largest planetary science budget ever um right like bigger than it was in the 1960s when we were throwing uh surveyors and lunar orbiters and um all of mm. these these uh apollo leading moon missions like we were we were chucking them out the door like candy and uh and this <laughs> this request is still higher than that peak which uh is pretty exciting and then the the planetary society priority missions are things like uh uh MSR the the Mars sample return mission Europa Clipper uh Dragonfly uh, all those and, and those are all well funded so yeah i just i want to circle back is this going to pass congress who knows right now um the Biden administration is asking for huge uh, amounts of spending. And, and like, I, I'm a bleeding heart liberal. I, I think that, yeah, a, a lot of this stuff um, is, you know, not even in some cases, you're not spending enough or you're not spending money in the right place, but at least you're spending uh, money on a, on a symptom, if not a cause like, uh, like that, that's my perspective. Um, but I, what I'm hoping is that because the administration is asking for such huge amounts of money that even though this is a lot of money going to NASA, that comparatively it will seem uh, quite reasonable. So we'll see. You know, Congress has already thrown a fit over the amounts of money that are being asked to spend, and uh, maybe that that will cause them to overcorrect and clamp down on everything and and. Uh, NASA either gets defunded uh, or has a lapse in funding or they, you know, get a, a, a small budget. Who, who knows? We'll see. Um, but that kind of leads into the next news item that I have. And like I said, I originally had these squished together. Um, and so the next one is about uh, an action in the, in the House of Representatives, um, which is one of the two houses in Congress. Um, one of the two houses, one of the two chambers, that's what they call them. One of the two, one of the two congressional chambers. And the house has this bill, um, that's been proposed, um, that, uh, would designate space as a critical infrastructure. Um, now, like if you know anything about the U S right now, um, the Biden administration is trying to get through a lot of spending by calling things, uh, that I believe are infrastructure, calling them infrastructure, even though traditionally they've not been called infrastructure, things like education. Traditionally, infrastructure in the U.S. has been defined as roads and bridges uh, and, of course, oil pipelines. <laughs> um, and so uh, calling education uh, infrastructure, I think it's the right thing to do. Calling Internet infrastructure, I think it's the right thing to do. A lot of people don't. Um, and so calling space uh, infrastructure. I wonder how this is going to go down. What's really interesting though, is that the, the two authors of the bill, one is a Republican, one is a Democrat, and, and they both agree on this. And what's interesting is they actually take very different, uh, mental 
uh, trajectories to come to an agreement. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting. So Ted Liu, um, they're, they're both from, uh, California, but Ted Liu is the, uh, the Democrat and he says space is infrastructure. Uh, like if we're, if we're going to protect, uh, infrastructure, then we need to correctly define infrastructure and space is infrastructure. Uh, Representative Calvert is the Republican author on the bill, um, and he says um, he, he doesn't agree that space is infrastructure. <laughs> At least he, he's not come out directly and said space is infrastructure, as far as I know. Um, but he says it, it's about national security, right? Which which is like a, a total uh, Republican pillar of, of their beliefs is we need to protect ourselves, and uh, space is part of national security. Our national security is at risk if we don't, uh, protect space. Um, so like they, they both actually do pretty much agree on that. They, they both say that cybersecurity, uh, demands, uh, like if we're going to, uh, have, um, security in our cyber, um, then space needs to be a priority as one of the big cogs in that mechanism. So what, what exactly does critical infrastructure mean? Like how, how does designating space as critical infrastructure actually affect any of this? So notably, um, this isn't budget, right? Saying this is critical infrastructure doesn't say we need to keep it at a certain minimal level of funding and above. Um, instead, it's, it's really a, a protection issue and thinking ahead about what we do if there's a problem. Critical infrastructure is safeguarded by multiple agencies in the federal government. Um, in particular, space would fall to the NHS, the, the National Homeland Security. I think that's what it is. Uh, but it, it would fall to Homeland Security and, and they cover most of the critical infrastructure in the U.S. And, and they, uh, partner with a lot of other agencies, uh, like the, uh, Department of Transportation, uh, co-oversees the critical infrastructure of oil pipelines. So it, it kind of makes sense that it, it would, uh, mostly, uh, fall under NHS's purview. Oh, DHS. D <laughs> So, uh, critical infrastructure, um, when, when a resource is designated as a critical infrastructure, um, basically the government has to make plans, uh, about, uh, how do we protect it? And what, what's really interesting is that the critical infrastructure work, the critical infrastructure protection work, it isn't really like a fire escape plan, right? Where you map out your building, you figure out the quickest routes, you look at, uh, how many people are expected to be in each part part of the building and, and try to build maps, uh, to help root people out of the building, uh, quickest. Um, that's, that's like a very immediate reactionary plan. This, this is not that this is much more nebulous. Um, and, and it's, uh, they kind of build these as I understand in, in the, spirit of, uh, what do we do if the worst happens? Um, but really it's more like mapping out how the, how that particular bit of infrastructure works, who's involved with it, um, and sort of laying down a foundation that allows all the involved organizations, um, to work together, um, to, to talk to each other and, and figure out who does what and, you know, who is, um, critical to this portion of the infrastructure and who's critical to that portion and, and kind of map those things out and, and kind of, um, prepare for preparing for if the worst happens, right? Like it, it's a little more nebulous, but from what I understand it, it's generally considered it as a, as a helpful thing. Um, so, uh, you know, that this would be more money, uh, spent, but it's like money just to the left of space, not more money to NASA. Um, but, but perhaps it's still, you know, a good portent, uh, of whether, uh, Congress is willing to, um, uh, to approve this this uh, large budget for NASA. And I think that the language of calling space and infrastructure, that's a little bit misleading, I think, though, because what, what we're actually talking about is, you know, the assets that we have that are in space. So we're talking about like pretty much satellites, I would think. I don't know what else there is really. Sat yeah, it, it's actually uh, all the way through the the chain there. So 
um, uh, ground resources are included as well. Um, and, and since they're taking such a, um, a, a, they're kind of pinning this on, on cybersecurity, it, it talks about, um, all of the things that space assets do or uh, space related assets do, um, to help us, uh, maintain, uh, cybersecurity. So like, um, if you have a communications disruption, it's really good to have basically an unjammable, um, military communication satellite that you can use to, uh, respond, uh, to that action by, by a foreign actor, uh, an international actor. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's not just the satellites. It's also how do we use them? Uh, what, what computers and, and radar dishes and, uh, workflows do we have here on earth that allow us to take advantage of them? And, and like a lot of these things are already included in critical infrastructure plans, like, uh, like air trans, you know, air transportation is a critical infrastructure. Um, but it, it just includes air and not space. So it's like some parts of NASA, but not all of NASA. So, so it, it's not a huge stretch to include, um, space related, um, systems and assets in this, but, but so far they don't well fit into any other category um that is uh you know one one of the other critical infrastructure category designations yeah it seems reasonable to me really i mean like i was just complaining about the wording used but otherwise i think that that does yeah. make a lot of sense um because it is critical i mean like we rely so much on you know the satellites that we have in orbit for all kinds of things like mm -hmm. i mean i do I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't even know where to begin like i don't think at this point that civilization is possible without it <laughs> um it, it, not, it, at not least the not civilization in any, or not know yeah. Right. Yeah. Not in any like recognizable yeah. modern form. So, yeah. yeah, it's important. OK, so we got three short and sweets this week. Uh, the usual number. <laughs> What's the first one, Dennis? Well, South Korea rocket prepares for October test. South Korea has revealed a test version of its first fully indigenous rocket, Nuri, or KSLV-2. While the Korean Aerospace Research Institute, Rikari, reached orbit with the Naro-1 in 2013, the first stage was a modified Russian Angara URM. The fully Korean-built Nuri has been in development since 2010, with an estimated 2 trillion won, or $1.8 billion, price tag. While two of the three stages of the flight model are still in construction, the country is aiming for an October 2021 launch with a Mach 200kg satellite payload, well below the launch vehicle's 2,600kg capability to Leo. And then next up, Axiom and SpaceX reach agreement to send three more private crews to ISS. Axiom Space and SpaceX have signed a contract for three additional private crew Dragon missions, bringing the total number currently planned to four. The AX-1 mission, or AX-1, signed previously, will launch in early 2022 with Michael Lopez Alegria in command. Although details for AX-2 through 4 are still being worked out with NASA, former chief astronaut Peggy Whitson is slated to command the next private mission. This news comes at a time when other private missions have been recently scheduled that will also use Crew Dragon capsules or Soyuz spacecraft. All right, and finally, a JWST launch update. A few weeks ago, we talked about Ariane 5's fairing separation causing excess vibration on the payload stack. Uh, they now say they've found the problem's origin, taken corrective actions, and are in the middle of a qualification review. The issue is not related to the new vent structures for JWST, and the rocket is scheduled to fly again at the end of next month. James Webb Space Telescope, however, is taking its time getting on board that rocket, and the launch has now been pushed back a week or two to the beginning of November. The vehicle has a reserved launch window that runs through early December, and to be fair, the previous launch date was no earlier than October 31st, um, so further schedule refinements are pending. So this sounds like an interview. It's kind of an interview. It's this is a just a quick little conversation um, with uh, somebody working on a project that uh, I'm personally really excited about. So welcome, uh, Dr. Alessandro Petruno, and you're the the owner of Quaternion Books. Is that right? Yes, correct. Okay, great. Um, and uh, he's going to tell us um, about a book that is 
currently very near the end of its uh, Kickstarter campaign. We got on this a little late, uh, but it's it's a really exciting book. So welcome, Alex. How's it going? Uh, great. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for hosting me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's actually, there's still 12 days for the Kickstarter campaign, so there's still a little bit of time. Yeah, 10 days after this episode is published, because we're, we're on a two-day delay. So 10 <laughs> right, days sure. is good. 10 days is still good, yes. Could you tell us a little bit about Quaternia, and then, and then we'll talk about the book? Yeah, so we are a small uh, startup publishing company. We, we funded it together with, uh, with, uh, with some friends last year. And our mission is to basically increase global scientific literacy. And we want to do that as a means to support and promote education among underrepresented people. And to do that, basically, we have envisioned this, this business model, which is a little bit uh, different than the usual, where we create books to disseminate scientific knowledge. And then we take part of the revenue that we get from the, the sales to fund projects that promotes diversity and inclusion, especially in the STEM field, because we are all coming from that background. It's really cool. It's been uh, fun to, to learn a little bit more about your company uh, after you folks emailed us. Um, and so uh, this is this your first book? Uh, no, we have done other books, but this is our first big project because uh, we I spent see. last year trying to uh, create a little project. For example, uh, we wrote uh, a, a book on the solar system for for the general public, we translated a new version, um, which was only in French from uh, uh, Marie Curie's PhD work, mm. uh, and a few other little projects. But this one is the the first big one. And what's it called? So this one is called uh, the Human Computer, Katherine Johnson's story, and it's a tribute bu book to Katherine Johnson. That she, she was the uh, the great mathematician that that was behind most of. Uh, uh, NASA successful stories during the space race in the in the 60s and 70s. And she's really gained in popularity since the the movie came out. Cheese, uh, what was the yeah, movie Hidden called? Figures, yeah. Hidden figures. Hidden mm -hmm. figures. Yeah. Yes. 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 She became really popular, and uh, it's a great story. Uh, it's a fantastic story. This book is not about her life. There is a little biography, of course, to give context to the public. But this, uh, this book is focused on her scientific achievements. So this is uh, the first book that uh, shows her calculations and shows exactly what is uh, her contribution and how she enabled NASA to send the first Americans in space, like Alan Shepard, John Glenn. And she also helped uh, to, to determine the, 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 the trajectory, for example, for the Apollo 11. The gravitational field they determined the gravitational field of the moon and she even helped to rescue the apollo 13 crew when uh, uh when there was the, the the famous problem houston we have a problem right so we are focusing on that part where we are basically retyping uh and restyling some of their of our scientific reports um so we are doing new high quality figures we are redoing uh, all the formulas, all the text, but then we are also adding a commentary. Uh, we have several astrophysicists uh, that are working from different international institutions, including myself. I'm also an astrophysicist. Um, and basically, we are commenting uh, the significance of that work to help the reader understand uh, the meaning of the calculations. Uh, and we have also included a few uh, interesting interviews with people working for at NASA and ESA that explain how missions are prepared and some historical background people that have uh, uh, worked in, in similar in the similar field during the 60s. I love this idea. I think this is so cool because like human stories are so important, but I feel like Katherine Johnson has been turned a little bit into um just a, a a story i mean it, like you said it's a fantastic story and it um it highlights a lot of the problems with american society and it highlights how intelligent and driven she was but this is the side of her story that that we we don't get to see is like mm. what did she actually do and how smart she actually was and i, I think it's i think it's a fantastic uh, concept for a book. And then the book itself looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, so you're, you're retyping the original reports. Like what, 
how how technically difficult is it to make it look as good as it does in the in the photos on your Kickstarter? Uh, it's quite a challenge because, of course, uh, what we are starting with is material that is public domain from NASA. Of course, these uh, scientific reports can be found uh, for free, uh, but then these are typewritten. Some of the of the plots or, or or the graphs or the figures are poorly readable. I mean, they are difficult to see, and uh, very often there is no background on the story so people reading the report need to do some sort of historical reconstruction uh, to understand what is the significance and so that's why we found uh, that uh, there is a lot of material that can be brought up to the general public to appreciate uh, her contribution and it's also an interesting fact that uh, you know as you know she was one of the first women to work as a scientist for NASA, but she was also the first woman to be part of a NASA editorial board. And that's why she co-authored 26 scientific reports together with her male colleagues. And so it's hard to keep track, for example, uh, the, 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 the contribution of other women because they don't appear, uh, especially at the time, of course, they had this group of mathematicians. There was not only Katrin Johnson, there were, there were a number of, uh, of great mathematicians working for NASA, but she is the, the only one that uh, uh, appears finally on a report. And so we made also a selection of these reports to, 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 to get those which uh, have the best background uh, story to tell to the people to appreciate uh, uh, the, the, the interesting work that she did. How hard has it been to get access to like all the information that you need? Like, is there certain things that are turning out to be very, very challenging or is it pretty transparent? Um, like, or is it just very difficult because there's just so much there and this took place, what, some 50 years ago <laughs> or more? Yeah, I have to say, reconstructing the, the background when you read the report, uh, of course, you don't have the background because these are scientific reports intended to be read at the time by scientists working in the space program. So uh, we had to do quite a bit of uh, historical reconstruction and the topics that she wor worked on are, are very different and not only are not only related to the Apollo program, for example, or um, but she worked, for example, also or on aircraft maneuvering for airplane like jet fighters on space antennas too, because at the time, of course, satellites, uh, now we give for granted that uh, satellites communicate with the ground stations in an easy way but at the time they had no idea how to do this with a moving uh, you know with a moving uh, spacecraft um, and so she worked on very different topics and the most the hardest part i think was to find the story behind uh, you know the background story that led katrin johnson to solve a specific problem could, could you give us an example of how the how the language of the field has changed like is there anything that sticks in your mind where you, you read the the original report and you go i i don't know what this means and and then that spurs that that historical research yeah i think that i i think that the one that gave me gave us uh, the the most trouble was a work on space antennas uh, at the time basically uh, nasa was developing uh, a design to send the first satellites in space containing an antenna to communicate with Earth, you know, with the ground station on, con continuously, which is what satellites do today. And uh, there was a huge conference in the early 60s where there were hundreds uh, of scientists only from NASA, from the different offices uh, of NASA. Katherine Johnson was not yet there, but she became part of this project uh, soon after this big conference. So we tracked down a few scientists that are now are there in their 70s and 80s, and we tried to interview them to, to see if they could give us some context and some background. And one thing that they told us, for example, um, is that the antenna, this large antenna, this space antennas was part of this NASA program. Uh, and they were d considering different designs. For example, uh, they were considering even what, what today we have on Earth is, is called the Very Large Baseline Interferometer, which is an array of uh, radio telescopes that combine, of course, the, the, the signals that they receive into, uh, into a unique signal through inter interference. And they were considering similar systems at the time for space. And then this was, they, they were reused then for uh, doing uh, telescopes on the ground, or uh, they used the technology developed during those times to 
create designs that are used even today. For example, they considered building a segmented uh, optical telescope with a size of 20, 30 meters. And if you look at these reports from the 60s, it's extremely similar to what the James Webb Space Telescope looks uh, like mm. today. Uh, so, and this is something that is really hidden, you know, behind the, the, the curtain of time. So yeah. we had to do quite a bit of a interesting uh, investigative, investigative work to, to find this out. Uh, okay, so the, the Kickstarter is up. Like we said, it's got about 10 days to go uh, by the time you hear this. Um, the first uh, pledge level um, with, uh, with a physical reward uh, is about $55, um, and that's, that gets you a, a copy of the hardcover. Um, and then uh, you can get a mention if you pledge uh, like $70, because um, it's all listed in euros. And then the, the highest is, is really my favorite, because uh, it's, it's about $80, uh, but it gets you access to um, Python code uh, that actually reproduces some of her calculations. Um, <laughs> that's a, a, a genius step to take. I think that's a fantastic reward. Um, and uh, I hope that our listeners will go, uh, go back the project. Uh, I'm, I haven't yet. I looked at it, uh, last week and I was really excited about it. And uh, actually, while we were talking, I logged into my Kickstarter so I can actually, um, get that out because I, I want this book. It's really pretty. But thank you so much for your time. Uh, before we let you go, was there anything uh, you want to throw in that we didn't talk about? Uh, no, no, we, we just said about basically everything. I just wanted to thank you guys for hosting me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank um, you. And then uh, real quick before we let you go, links will be in the show notes to uh, the Kickstarter and uh, Quaternion's website and Twitter and all that good stuff. But one of the things that we do for our, our longer form interviews is we always ask uh, each of our interviewees uh, a final question. I'd like to throw it out to you because I would love to hear your answer as an astrophysicist. So the, the question is, if you were to go to space... Um, and normally we specify, uh, you know, like a trip to a, a commercial space station or to the ISS in, in Leo. But if you could go to space, what's one object that you would bring with you? Oh, this is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably what I would bring with me is some camera to detect uh, x-rays in order to take some mm. pictures that we cannot take on Earth. So something... Yeah. Some detect some detector ready to observe uh, X-ray sources. Like uh, I work on black holes and neutron stars, so uh, being able to, to take a picture of those objects with my hands would be amazing. Mm. So, this week in spaceflight history, let's do that. We have two winners, just two winners: the Greek and Unc Willie. And the clue was shut it down, but keep some of the camera parts. I guess maybe this had something to do. I, I mean, I never know what the actual event is, but I can kind of, you know, get an idea. And my guess is something to do with telescopes, maybe, or cameras, actually, since, you know, <laughs> you do mention that word. So I don't know if I was right, but I guess you're going to tell us. So what was the event, Dennis? All right. So the event was the 10th of June, 1969. And this was when the Manned Orbiting Laboratory or MOL, M-O-L, program was officially uh, canceled, or at least, you know, it was, uh, Congress was notified and a public uh, statement was released uh, announcing its cancellation. And so that's, uh, I mean, right then and there, that's kind of where the shut it down clue comes from. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I was joke joking about how I've been watching some uh, 30 Rock lately. But I also wanted to throw in that bit about the camera parts, because like, you know, you're saying, right, there there, there was a uh, uh, an optical uh, reconnaissance component to this uh, mission. In fact, that was uh, uh, in in most ways the the main component of the mission was that it was a reconnaissance um, uh, space station, essentially, or at least vehicle. But yeah, and so uh, there might have been some other cancellations and whatnot around this time. And so I want to make it clear that uh, that's what kind of distinguishes this one from the others. And so uh, the mole is a really interesting uh, object. I wanted to, uh, you know, I feel like you know, this is this is a biggie. And so I want to do it justice, but there's I feel like there's other clues that you can even drag out of here as well, because, you know, this is just a, such a large program that involved a lot of different things. And so that's why I didn't want to go into too much detail. You could do I, I can imagine an, uh, an incredible data relay if someone wanted to really par their 
pour their uh, heart and soul into investigating uh, the mole, the manned orbiting laboratory. Uh, going back to uh, you know when it started, uh, you got to go back about four years. And so it was announced on the 25th of August, 1965, by uh, then-President Lyndon Johnson. And um, the idea was this was going to be a crewed vehicle for reconnaissance, like I had mentioned. But um, specifically, you had a, uh, a Gemini B capsule. Okay, and so this was essentially um, a uh, modified, converted uh, uh, Gemini capsule. Uh, it kind of was, I guess, inherited from uh, the Gemini Blue program, which is an interesting one, which was an idea of basically using uh, a bunch of Geminis to go and ferry astronauts to, you know, stations uh, in LEO and bring them back. Um, but, uh, you know, even though it was, you know, it looks like a Gemini and everything, uh, it had a very different, um, or they basically kind of ripped out a lot of the, uh, uh, the, the controls and hardware and, you know, basically redid it and redid the software too, right? Because remember, Gemini had the first uh, uh, computer, uh, kind of proper computer on board uh, for uh, an American uh, spacecraft. So you've got the, the capsule, which, you know, has uh, the unpressurized service module behind it. That was true for all like the proper, you know, Gemini program, Gemini's as well. Uh, and then you had an adapter lab interface that kind of then increased the width of your uh, spacecraft. And then you had the majority of the 72 feet uh, of the vehicle. And this larger thing was essentially you had uh, a living module uh, for, you know, with, you know, bunks, you know, along the walls and basically where, you know, the, the astronauts could live. Um, it'd be a crew of two, right, being, you know, a uh, Gemini, but you could um, longer term, if this mission, you know, if this program had gone through to fruition, uh, they might have uh, upgraded it to a, a crew of four eventually. And uh, so this, this, this main component, though, has a living module. And then below that, um, is the, or you know, behind that, however you want to determine it after that, <laughs> is the laboratory module, um, and the, uh, mission payload system segment. So in other words, uh, that is where you would have, among other things, uh, the real heart and, uh, saw this, which is the, uh, as a telescope, uh, actually a, a few different telescopes. And so that was the idea is that this was going to be a, um, reconnaissance, uh, uh, spacecraft because the idea, you know, this is, you know, again, this is the mid sixties. And, you know, uh, you know, we had U2 planes flying all over the place and we did have, you know, uh, the Corona and later, uh, uh, a couple other, um, programs that were taking images from orbit and then, you know, dropping capsules back to earth with the film on board to get retrieved. Um, and so this one though had a different take on it. Okay. So it was an NRO program. So it was declass, it was classified for most of its, uh, uh, life, although, it also had a public side to it. And so essentially, to use the language that the NRO uses, there was, you know, a, a white operation and a black operation, basically, right? White ops, black ops. And so uh, it was already known from congressional hearings and things like that, that we wanted that the, no, no, the United States wanted to send up this, this giant orbiting laboratory. And so uh, that was kind of its public-facing, uh, 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 you know, uh, purpose and objective was to just be a science lab to test long duration, you know, humans uh, in orbit. Uh, and by long duration, basically a month at a time. But the recently declassified bit is uh, the black ops side was that it was going to basically be spying on in particular, you know, the Soviets, but, you know, uh, any other kind of places of interest uh, that, you know, the United States government wanted to, the NRO, I guess, in particular. And so it was, it was directly a successor to Dinosaur. Um, it, the concept of this kind of orbiting station was mentioned in the same, uh, press release that announced Dinosaur's cancellation. And, uh, you know, all the while, like the culture behind it, uh, people were worried about it becoming, uh, you know, Dinosaur Part Two, right? Which, you know, was kind of famously canceled. The reconnaissance part of it was basically called, uh, was this Keyhole 10 Dorian. And so a lot of times you'll see, you know, Mole slash, uh, Dorian, uh, which was the byman name for the, the, the uh, reconnaissance uh, telescope. To give you a context at this time, uh, this would be, you know, Keyhole 10 in the series, right? Ben had just, you know, I think last week, right? You talked, um, about, right? We, uh, uh, the, Keyhole uh, 11 cannons, right? And the two of them that were donated from the NRO to NASA, you know, and what ultimately became uh, uh, the uh, Roman Space Telescope. And so uh, at this time, you know, the previous number was, uh, was the uh, uh, Keyhole 9 uh, hexagon, which was being developed at the time that the mole was being, you know, worked on. Uh, there were earlier iterations, uh, a pair of gambit uh, 
programs uh, that were spying and they were dropping tapes and all that good stuff. Now, it's it's not ideal to do it the way that we had been doing it because one, things are not as automated, right, um, as they are nowadays. And so uh, you, for example, uh, if you wanted to look at a target, you look at that target and there's clouds there, you're just going to go and get a cloudy picture and you're wasting film. And you can only record so much film before you fill it into your little capsule and you jettison it back to earth. And that also means that there's a delay. And so if you had something, you know, like the, you know, the Cuban missile crisis, for example, the, the, the reconnaissance or the, the intelligence community wanted, you know, their, uh, you know, to basically be able to get even quicker, you know, imagery, uh, and be able to, uh, you know, when these kind of, uh, situations develop, be able to get the information sooner rather than later without, you know, a week or two of a delay. And so the idea that made this, this mole different, uh, from these other missions was to have humans in the loop, essentially, right? One way you could think of it is that the humans were essentially a pair of, uh, finder scopes. You know, I mean, there, there were two, uh, lower power telescopes that, right? Just like, you know, your, your telescope, your main telescope might have like a smaller, uh, guide, uh, finder scope on the side of it. You know, that's true even for backyard telescopes. Um, so similarly though, this, this main, you know, uh, uh, Dorian telescope would have, you know, a pair of these smaller ones that the crew would look at and they would just be kind of having, you know, uh, the, the, the spacecraft would basically move from target to target that was kind of uh, decided on the ground what were interesting targets and they had a few seconds to basically select among reject the target it's inactive which means it doesn't look like there's much going on there um it's active and so you probably really want to check it out and film it uh, or uh, to override where if it was like such a high priority um and what it would override is that the, there would be a vote voting system between what the uh, the computer would want to do automatically as well as what the humans would do and or, or basically choose when they would, you know, select among those four options. And so, I mean, that was kind of the real uh, uh, main idea of the uh, the Black Ops side of it. Um, there, it really was going to also, though, be useful for, you know, just testing, having humans in space for long durations and, you know, essentially a Skylab type, you know, situation there. You know what I mean? And um, what Mole was like uh, was essentially, you know, 1.5 billion was... Uh, uh, forked out for it um, with 1.3 billion um, uh, spent, although that might have gone up to 1.5 eventually. There's kind of conflicting numbers uh, depending on where you look. But uh, like I mentioned, these three-day images, they were hoping to get, uh, you know, as many as 1,500 cloud-free targets during uh, each of these monthly missions. And one of the interesting uh, technological bits of this, right, because like I said, this is a Gemini, but the whole thing, you know, uh, is launched together. Okay. The, 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 it doesn't, there's no kind of, you know, rendezvous and docking in space. And so that means your Gemini is attached to the top of the rest of the orbit of the laboratory. And therefore, to get from your spacecraft to the laboratory, they basically had to, you know, put a hole through the heat shield and have a little hatch there. And then you would climb through that hole and then through past the, you know, the, the fuel and oxidizer, right? Which is a little, you know, uh, a little, well, scary there too, right? I think that was the reason Dream Chaser mm. wasn't uh, crew rated, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to climb through this ladder to basically get then into the uh, the rest of the vehicle, and then when you were done, you climb back uh, up into your, your your Gemini capsule, and then it detaches from the rest of the uh, laboratory. You come back in, uh, kind of normal esque, you know, uh, 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 you know, you just kind of standard deorbit and you return to Earth, uh, just like the uh, previous Gemini's had. And then the rest of the observatory would eventually deorbit because it wasn't put in very high orbit uh, in the first place. Uh, basically, 80 by 186 nautical miles were uh, kind of the nominal orbit they were looking for. And so it would deorbit on its own, uh, you know, shortly afterwards. Yeah, so this, this would have been launching humans from uh, uh, Vandenberg on a, a Titan 3M booster. So this is a modified 3C, but just specifically for uh, the mole. And so I guess that's what the M is. And so uh, to remind you, if you uh, were, if you're unfamiliar with what a Titan uh, a 3C was like, uh, essentially this was, you know, these really big <laughs> rockets that would take up a lot of these, you know, uh, keyhole, you know, reconnaissance vehicles and very heavy things. And um, it had uh, two solid boosters on the sides and then a first and second stage that used Arizine 50 and uh, nitrogen uh, tetroxide. And so, uh, anyway, you know, I mean, these, these were, you know, really, really powerful rockets, you know, uh, later generations, for example, like flew, you know, Cassini, 
you know, launched Cassini, you know, out to, you know, Saturn. So to give you an idea of just kind of how much oomph these had. I, I thought, you know, for something that never actually came to fruition, you know, uh, they, you know, they had built some hardware. Uh, I'll talk about it later, but like most of it was just developing the concept and everything. And so a lot of it really had to do with, uh, I think that made it interesting was the, the crew and the astronauts involved. And so, uh, essentially, uh, to, to be selected for some of them, at least that were selected, I think 17 ultimately made it. Not all of them stayed. Uh, but the, uh, uh, a lot of them, uh, at least for the first round of uh, selections, uh, were uh, attending the Aerospace Research Pilot School, uh, which is uh, the Air Force. And so everybody involved in this mole program was military, as you can imagine, given the classified nature of it and the military nature of it. Um, but they uh, straight up didn't even apply. They were kind of just like, you know, some of them were told, at least, you know, Dick Truly in particular was just told, you know, essentially, uh, you know, hey, uh, we're, you know, we want you in this program. So you're you're coming. What, what, what's cool is some of these names you'll recognize uh, with the early... Um, uh, shuttle astronauts. And so Bob Crippen, right? Dick Truly, uh, Bo Bobco, Don Peterson, Gordon Fullerton, Hank Hartsfield, uh, and Bob Overmeyer uh, were all in this uh, mole class. And I definitely mentioned some of them before because, uh, right, this was the first generation of shuttle pilots that were, well, shuttle pilots, right? Um, like I, I talked about uh, the first commanders on the shuttle uh, were all the kind of veterans from Apollo or Skylab or X-15 flights or something like that, right? And so, you know, what you did was you flew as a pilot and then you kind of then were promoted to commander. And so the first generation of, you know, shuttle only pilots and then commanders were uh, exclusively from this uh, class for the first six missions before anybody else kind of rookie pilots that are taking over. And and also I want to give a shout out to Don Peterson who uh I also talked about in a this week spaceflight history for he's the uh the, the poor the poor fellow who was uh doing the first shuttle EVA ever with Story Musgrave who kind of stole a lot of the thunder. <laughs> and so <laughs> Don Peterson was a mole uh, uh pilot as well. And so um but there, it also included uh, uh Mike Adams was there who you might recognize he was an X15 pilot. Uh he did get his wings but unfortunately, you know, uh had uh, uh, died on a uh, um his you know on a X15 flight and then uh Bob Lawrence who was the first uh, African American selected uh to be an astronaut but he also unfortunately passed away in a uh training uh uh flight uh, uh accident uh, his vehicle uh crashed and he uh he wasn't able to eject safely uh an interesting thing though uh, about all the pilots in the or all the uh astronauts in the uh the mole program was that it, it was a lot different, um, at least than, you know, the shuttle, at least, but like they, they were all involved directly in developing the program itself. So like literally, like you would be not only like assigned, you know, you, you would all be assigned a task. Like one person was, you know, working with the contractors on spacesuits and they were the, uh, the astronaut who was in the loop and somebody on the capsule and somebody was developing simulators and the RCS system. And like you, you were working with the engineers and the, uh, the, the contractors directly. Um, and so you, you spent like, you know, you you had to do some of this, you know, training, you know, there were some mock-ups built and things like that, but a lot of your time was spent actually kind of like, you know, creating the software or the hardware needed. But ultimately, as I, you know, as I said at the top of this, that, you know, it, it was canceled and it, it never actually, um, there were no moles that were launched. Um, there was this ever-present tension of whether a crew was really needed. Um, even at one point, as, you know, the program was developing, they had a, a mode A and a mode B, which is a crewed and uncrewed version of it, where even, you know, while the crew was on board, they could just basically switch it to uncrewed and kind of just, I don't know, uh, kick up their feet and float around and relax, you know what I mean? Which, again, kind of argues, well, why are you doing this in the first place? Is is saving the film really that important? Um, is that really going to save you that much when you go and have me bags in the loop, which are very expensive uh, to get up there safely and bring them down. And um, at the same time, it was competing for funding from other projects, uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the U.S.'s involvement in that was uh, escalating. All the while, uh, the uncrewed uh, Keyhole 9 hexagon uh, you know, reconnaissance satellites were almost as good as the Dorian would have been on this mole. And then uh, Keyhole 11, the Kennens, were basically superior. And uh, essentially, the uncrewed uh, reconnaissance technology was outpacing what we thought we needed humans in the loop for. And so uh, at that point, uh, it was kind of just no longer thought to be necessary. And then on the 10th of June, 69, uh, the top mole people notified Congress and basically made a public statement that uh, the program was canceled. Um, although, quote, uh, from 
internal document, uh, again, only recently unclassified, quote, terminate the mole program except for those camera system elements useful for incorporation into an unmanned satellite system optimized to use the Titan 3D, and end quote. And so that Titan 3D, again, this is one of the ones that was launching a lot of these keyhole 9s and keyhole 11s uh, into the through the 70s and the early 80s. Some of that, you know, stuff uh, still, you know, worked. And it really wasn't, uh, you know, I mean, you could argue whether or not, you know, one and a half billion dollars was a good use of money for this, but it really had a, a very, you know, useful legacy, I, I have to say, because a lot of the hardware just seamlessly transitioned to Skylab. Like we're like uh, Bob Crippen stated that, you know, it, it wasn't anything different. Like he literally the, the day to day task that he was working on related to the controls basically just identical is what he had used when he started to work uh, on on developing that for Skylab. And so um, on top of that, though, getting that first crop of shuttle pilots, you know, was very useful to have, you know, these these people on board there. And um, and uh, this isn't the only time humans tried this, right? Later in the 70s, um, three uh, Salyuts were launched uh, as part of the Soviet Almaz program, which again was trying to have humans in there during, you know, doing you know, spy duties uh, from orbit. Yeah, that's basically the uh, the, the the mole. Um, I thought it was really neat. And uh, the only uh, hardware to fly, they built mock-ups and everything, but the only hardware, something physical, uh, you know, that flew was uh, uh, they actually had launched a Gemini B on a Titan 3C uh, with, you know, its hatch and its heat shield. And the heat shield actually partially melted upon re-entry. Mm. Um, so it, it held, which is good. But um, if they needed to get out of it after it landed, uh, they probably wouldn't have been able to do that. But I don't want to talk about that too much because I feel like that would be a very interesting uh, uh, this week in space flight yeah. history uh, event to do in the future at some point. And so, yeah, so that's the mole program. Uh, I mean, like I said, there's a million things you could look at. Uh, the NRO has declassified so many documents. So if you want, really want to kind of get into it and geek out, uh, there's a treasure trove of documents available for you. Great, Dennis. Thank you. Um, okay. So next week is going to be the 15th through the 21st of June. And David, do you have a clue for us? I do. So the clue is, next week in 1993, it was the longest day. Ten minutes later, it was the shortest. Okay, well, if you know what that clue is in reference to, shoot us a tweet, use the hashtag ThisWeekSF, and good luck, everybody. So let's move on over to upcoming spaceflight events. Just one launch and then a spacewalk. So what's the launch? Well, our launch is an interesting one. I mean, they usually are. Uh, this is uh, June 15th, uh, and it is a Minotaur 1 that will take uh, Enroll 111. And so this is a long-delayed, you know, uh, U.S. National Reconnaissance Office payload, classified, um, that has been delayed since December of 2018, um, a few times uh, through until, you know, its most recent delay was March of 2021. And now, uh, yeah, and now it's, uh, well, hopefully on June 15th going to launch. Um, and yeah, this is the first uh, uh, Minotaur 1 to fly since uh, November 20th, 2013. It's been a while, so really exciting to see that in that regard. And so keep an eye out for this uh, between uh, 1030 UTC and 1530 UTC. Launching from Wallops uh, Launch Area 0B. All right. After that, on June 16th, which is uh, the Wednesday after our next show comes out, it's really early in the morning, so we're going to give you a little bit of extra time to plan for it. Um, 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, yeah, that counts as early, is when the coverage of the spacewalk begins. So this is uh, U.S. Spacewalk 74, and it is the first of the IROSA Solar Array installation uh, EVAs. Very exciting to me. I can't wait uh, to see IROSA uh, unroll those giant, but not quite as giant as the other solar rays <laughs> that are right next to them. Yeah. Um, so th this first one is going to uh, the P6 segment on the truss. Um, and uh, they're going to be powering up the 2B power channel. Um, so like I said, the coverage begins at 630. The spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 8 o'clock a.m. Eastern time, and it's going to be at least a six and a half hour spacewalk. You know how these things can get a little fuzzy on how long they're going to go. Uh, but yeah, uh, the spacewalk starts at 8 a.m. Uh, quite a few people are going to be up by then or within an hour of then uh, if you're on the East Coast. Um, so that that will be uh, well worth watching. And uh, with that, those are your upcoming space flight events. And I guess with that, we will deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. 
Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links for Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye-bye, everybody. See you.